And then there was light. What's up, y'all? How you guys doing? That was really weak. I know that there's fewer of us in the room, but I need for y'all to like, like this is family. If you're in here, that means you've been here, right? So, um, so how y'all doing? Good, thank you. Please talk to me. Um, it helps me. So anyway, I'm excited. I'm really excited um, to be here speaking with you all tonight. And uh, it's going to be really good. I'm going to be down here because you guys are closer and we're just going to kind of set the mood. That's all right. Be a little bit more intimate tonight. And uh, I'm excited. This is the first Encountering God's Presence breakout session that there has ever been uh, at City Life. We're hoping that we will continue to do this, continue to have breakout sessions, and continue um, to kind of revolve the, whoever speaks here and what the topic will be. And so I'm excited to, to kind of break the ice and be the first. Um, so tonight we are discussing the topic of embracing God's presence or encountering God's presence, um, but specifically encountering God's presence in your work. So I want to expand our understanding of what it means to encounter the presence of God tonight. And I also want to expand our understanding of what work means. I heard a lot of, uh, when I said that, when I said the word work, right? I want to expand tonight your definition maybe of work and expand your understanding of what it means to encounter the presence of God. So before we do that, let's, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the amazing people that are in this room. Thank you that your presence is accessible to us. We've already encountered it tonight. We've already felt it. And we just pray that we will continue to feel it for the rest of the service, continue to engage it. God, continue to commune with you for the rest of this service, but also uh, into the rest of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so as I said, I wanna expand our understanding of what it means to have an encounter with God. And so in order to expand, we got to kind of first start with home base, what we already know and what we already think about when we say encountering the presence of God. I think most of the time when we say or when we think about encountering the presence of God, we think about, we compare the presence of God like two things. We either compare God's presence to the presence of a celebrity or the presence of an alien, right? We, we think about encountering God like encountering a celebrity or encountering an alien. This is what I mean by that. So uh, we're close tonight. We'll participate. I'll ask you a question. I won't ask who has ever encountered an alien before, but hope, because hopefully I know the answer to that question. If you've ever encountered an alien, I don't want to know about it. Please don't tell me. Um, but, but I do want to know if anyone in here has ever encountered, if you've ever met a celebrity in real life, and if you have, where was the setting for that encounter? So anybody met somebody famous? Yeah. I was in a hotel. In a hotel. And who did you meet? Okay, all right, so they were, that's where they were staying before the game. He said a bunch of Broncos players. Okay, anybody else? Yeah. I met Andy Minio. Andy <laughs> Minio. If you don't know, Andy Minio is a Christian hip-hop artist, and where did you meet Andy Minio? I met Andy Minio at City Life. Hey, at City Life, at our Uprising concert, um, to be more specific, right? He performed at the Uprising, and uh, she actually made a pair of shoes for Andy uh, that he still boasts about to this day. So anybody else? Encountering, oh, yeah. Who did you meet? Yoda? Okay, where was that? It was, is that the voice of Yoda? At a wedding. Wow, that's nuts. Okay, anybody else? Yeah. Magic Johnson, where at? At Charlotte at a game or convention, okay. He was speaking or something. All right, yeah. Music soul child. It's Valentine's season and everything. Perfect timing. All right, where did you meet him? 
In the airport on the way to a concert? Okay. Vander Holyfield where? Oh, at the Dove Awards. That's awesome. Okay, so the award show. Yeah, up top. Mike Vick. Where at? At the basketball court, just randomly? What in the world? That's awesome. He said they played together. That's cool. All right, so I love that. I love that. I have two kind of celebrity stories, I, um, both of which you, you probably have never even heard of, but these are the only stories that I have, so sorry. Um, but uh, I, I'm a huge spoken word fan. I love poetry, and so uh, one of the poets that I really love, her name is Alicia Harrison. Um, she had a show at Christopher Newport University, and so I went to the show with my wife and was like geeking out the whole time. It was amazing, and we hung back afterwards, and <laughs> there was a line of people, right, waiting to go meet her, and I was in that line with my wife, and I was so nervous that I spit my gum out onto the floor. <laughs> and fortunately, I did that before I, we got up to her, but even by the time we got up to her, I was mumbling. I was not making any sense. Hannah had to speak for me. She invited her to church. Like, she was cool as a cucumber, and I was extremely nervous and stressed out. Um, so I met Alicia Harris. That was pretty awesome. And then I met um, Dustin Kentrew. I don't know if anybody in here knows the band Thrice. Um, so Pastor Justin of the Suffolk campus is a huge Thrice fan. And so back in our bachelor days, we went to a Thrice concert at the Norva uh, with cord walls, actually. And uh, it was an experience for sure. I really enjoy Thrice, but they're a little bit out of my musical genre preference. They're kind of like hard rock a little bit. They scream a little bit. And so we get there and Pastor, Just, Pastor Justin leaves us to the wayside and like dives into the mosh pit and Cord and I are just like clinging to the walls trying not to get murdered by someone accidentally punching us, right? And so it was crazy. It was a, it was a cool show and it was a cool concert. And so afterwards, again, this was our bachelor days and so we didn't have wives or children to go back home to. So we hung out, right? We were like, let's see if maybe we can meet the band. And so we were behind uh, and, you know, there was their tour bus and we're just kind of waiting and waiting and waiting and they never came out. And so like, all right, let's just go home. We start going home, we round the corner of the Norva, and as we're walking in, in towards the front entrance, here comes Dustin Kentrew, the, the lead singer, and you can just see it in his face. He's like, bruh, like I do not have the energy to talk to these three dudes, um, but he did, and he was awesome, uh, but it was cool. So yeah, those are my celebrity <laughs> encounter stories, but I, I tell you those stories because I think that I noticed a trend, at least in my story and some of the stories um, that you guys shared, and it's this, that most of the time when we encounter celebrities, we encounter them in or around the place where we're expecting their presence, right? It's at a show, it's at a convention center, you know, it's, um, it's, it's uh, in the air, uh, who said, the hotel, right, where they're um, playing, where they're about to play, right? It's, uh, it's backstage, maybe you're fancy enough to get VIP reservations, right? Backstage passes. And so typically when we encounter a celebrity, we typically encounter them in or around the area where their presence is expected. We have this idea that if you want to encounter a celebrity, you've got to go to where they are. And I think sometimes we think about the presence of God in that same way, right? Often we do. If I want to encounter the presence of God, I've got to go to where I expect him to be. The presence of God is something that I go to. And, uh, and we know that encounters can happen this way, right? There's, there's 
biblical precedence for that. We see in Matthew chapter 18, 20, Jesus says, where two or more are gathered, there I will be in their midst, right? Acts 2, we see the, the disciples gathering in a specific place on the day of Pentecost uh, where, where Jesus told them to tarry and to wait, right? They were expecting his presence and, and they had an encounter with him, we think about going into the presence of God. We think about Moses in Exodus 34, right? Moses goes up to the top of the mountain and he goes into the presence of God. So there is like, there's biblical precedence for this, but, but you can find the presence of God and you can encounter God in more places that, than that. The problem is if you only expect to encounter God's presence on mountaintops, we become more like groupies than disciples, right? We, we chase experiences from mountaintop to mountaintop and end up missing him in the middle. And so we can encounter the presence of God by gathering and by going, but that's not the only way. So VIP reservations, extraterrestrial visitation. Sometimes I think, or I, I can't say the word encounter without also thinking close encounter, right? Close encounter of the third kind. Anybody ever watched that alien movie? <clears throat> I've actually never seen that movie, but I watched enough X-Files to pretty much know how it goes, right? If, you've, if you watch any kind of sci-fi, if you watch X-Files enough, you'll see and you'll notice that there's a trend, that there's a typical setting. If you want to encounter an alien, there's a place that's more advantageous to go, and that place is in the middle of nowhere, right? In the desert, uh, in a cornfield, out in the Midwest, right? And, and I think the, the idea is, is that, you know, the message that these, uh, <laughs> these artists, when they put these movies together, they're trying to tell us is that you can't hide from aliens, right? Wherever you go, they can find you, and they will come to you wherever and whenever you least expect it, right? And so that's another way that, that we sometimes think about the presence of God. We think we can encounter God by going to him, but sometimes we can encounter God by him coming to us when we least expect it at the place uh, where we didn't ask for him to come, right? I think about the biblical precedence for this is Jacob in the desert. If you know that story in Genesis 28, Jacob is at the lowest point of his life, what Pastor Fred prob probably would call a desperation revelation, right? He was at the lowest point in his life, separated completely from his family, on the run, uh, and, and he finds a rock in the middle of the desert to lay his head on, and, uh, and just like a sci-fi movie, he wakes up to a UFO hovering over his body, right? It's not really a UFO, but it says in the Bible that there was this like luminescent ladder coming down from the clouds, and there were aliens, I mean angels, <laughs> ascending and descending, uh, and I, you know, if there was a word, if there was a concept of UFOs and aliens back then, we probably would have gotten a different wording in, in our Bibles, right? If, if uh, there's no other story that sounds like an extraterrestrial visitation, it's that one, right? And so we have this idea, right, that we can experience God and we tend to experience God sometimes in, in desperation situations, when we're desperate, when we are at our worst, when... Uh, we're farthest from him. The problem is, is that if we only expect to encounter God's presence in the wilderness, we become drifters instead of disciples, waiting for God's intervention, never living with intention. We become lazy. We think God is an alien. He'll come whenever, wherever he wants. If he wants to get my attention, you know, he'll come and he'll find me, right? And so we can encounter the presence of God like an unexpected visitation. We can encounter the presence of God like VIP reservations like we do with 
celebrities, but there's another way that I want to talk about tonight, and that is encountering God through day-to-day collaboration. Day-to-day collaboration. The presence of God is something we can encounter whenever and wherever we collaborate with him. Somebody say, prove it. Prove it. All right. Thank you. I'm glad you asked. Okay, Mark chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles, and I think, yep, it'll be on the screen up there too. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. I want to look at an encounter with God that um, is exactly like this, a day-to-day collaboration. So Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, it says, One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, also called Peter, and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. And Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. I think the setting of this encounter with Jesus, of this encounter with God, is just as significant as those other kinds of encounters we talk about, we talked about already tonight, right? It's the, 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 just as significant, the setting is just as significant as the desert was for Jacob. It's just as significant as the mountain was for Moses, but what I mean by setting is not that there wasn't anything special about the Sea of Galilee, nothing special about the sands, right? Nothing special about the water. What was special about it was that it was a workplace. It wasn't necessarily where they were, but, but what these two men were doing, they were working. And there's a precedence for this in scripture as well. We see all throughout scripture, people encountering the presence of God at work, Exodus chapter three, Moses in the burning bush. Most of the time when we think about Moses in the burning bush, we think about Moses was just kind of like, you know, wandering in the middle of the desert, but Moses was at work, right? It says uh, that Moses was tending his father-in-law's flock. He was working and then he saw the burning bush. He had an encounter with God. Gideon, Gideon was at work. He was threshing wheat uh, in a wine press, right? He was threshing wheat and then he encountered the presence of God, even David, right? David was out in the backyard. So young people, you're not off the hook as we're talking about work tonight. You might not have a job, but you have chores, you have work to do, right? David was out in the backyard tending the sheep and, and you know, feeding the pets. And when Samuel, this big prophet comes and he prophesies over his life, he was at work when he had his encounter with God. So why is it so important that they were working? Why is it so important to the setting of these encounters that these men in these stories, these disciples in Mark 1 were at work? I think it's because God is constantly searching for coworkers. God is constantly searching for coworkers. If we fast forward in the story of Mark from the first chapter all the way to the very last chapter, the very last verses of The book of Mark, it says in verse 19, when the Lord Jesus had finished talking with them, he was taken up into heaven. So he wasn't just finished talking with them like over coffee, right? It wasn't like he was finished talking with them for the day. He was done talking with them forever in that form, right? So when Jesus, the Lord The Lord Jesus had finished talking with them. He was taken up into heaven and sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. The boss, the supervisor has left the building. Their rabbi, their teacher left. I don't know what you do when your supervisor leaves. Maybe you pull up BuzzFeed and you start to scroll, right? Or or maybe you get on Facebook and then you start, um, you know, commenting and liking young people. When your teacher leaves the classroom, you might take out your phone and start texting, right? 
I don't know what you do when your supervisor, when your teacher, when your boss leaves the room, but this is what these disciples did, verse 20. And the disciples went. The disciples went everywhere and preached. And the Lord worked through, in other translations, it says the Lord worked with them, confirming what they said by many miraculous signs. I think that in Mark 1, when Jesus was walking up and down the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he was in search. We always give, you know, the disciples a hard time when we talk about this story because we say, you know, Jesus chose the riffraff. He chose the least likely of people. But I think, yes, that's true, and Jesus was intentional about that. But I think Jesus also knew when he was looking at them in Mark 1, remember, he's God. He can see into the future. When he sees, and, uh, when he sees Andrew and when he sees Peter at work, And he even says it in the text, you're fishermen now. I can see you as fishermen now, but I can see past that. I can see through that and see you at work for the kingdom. You're not just fishermen. You're going to be fishers of men, right? And so when Jesus was walking up and down the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he wasn't just picking random people. He was looking for people at work, right? He was looking for people with a work ethic. He wasn't looking for groupies. He wasn't looking for drifters. He was looking for coworkers. It says in that, that text in, verse, um, in chapter 16 that when their supervisor left the room, they went to work because they had a good work ethic and the Lord worked with them. God delights in working with us. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 says, we are God's coworkers. So not every encounter with God is preceded by work in scripture, but every encounter with God precipitates work. Anytime someone meets God, has an encounter with God, they're ready to work. Okay, whatever it is you do, when the UFO comes down and talks to Jacob, he's like, got it, I'm good. I'll do whatever it is that you ask me to do. Not every encounter with God is preceded by work, but every encounter with God precipitates work, and it will be easier for you to do that work after the encounter if you're already found hard at work before it. This is what I call the principle of spiritual inertia, I don't know if someone's already coined that phrase, but I am coining it today, and they can, um, you know, email me if if it's already trademarked, and I'll give you all the money that I'm receiving today for it, okay? Um, The principle of spiritual inertia. Before we we understand uh, spiritual inertia, we've got to understand physical inertia. So there's this theory of inertia. There's two parts. The first part is this, that objects at rest will remain at rest unless compelled to change by an external force. Objects at rest. This 100-pound dumbbell is an object at rest, right? This object at rest will remain at rest unless compelled to change. This thing does not want to move, right? I love, if you look up uh, the inertia, I'm a nerd, I'm a word nerd, so I like looking up like origins of words, and if you look up the origin, the, the origin for the word inertia in the Latin, it literally means lazy. So inertia says that everything in the universe, all the objects in the universe is, are, are lazy. They're lazy like this kettlebell. They just, they don't want to move, right? Where spiritual inertia comes into play is that all of those objects, all of those things in the universe, that includes us, right? We are lazy if we're honest with ourselves at the core. We don't like to work. If we're at rest, we want to remain at rest. And so already some of you guys are are sneaky. You're conniving. I already know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, 
If, uh, if an object at rest can be compelled to move, if an object at rest can be compelled, coaxed into working by an external force, then I'm good. I'll just stay here, sit comfortably, comfortably, sit lazily in my life, in my armchair, watching Netflix, scrolling through BuzzFeed, until God himself comes and puts me to work, right? I'll wait around until God, an external force, the, what, what better, what greater external force than God? And what I would say is, sure, you could do that. You could live your life just like that, waiting for the next conference, right, so that you can go and just see if God will move you, right? You could go through your life just doing the same old same, waiting to see if maybe God will randomly show up in your living room uh, with a, a luminescent ladder, right, and just begin to start telling you what you should do with your life. If you do that, this is what your relationship with God will look like. Right, just like dragging you along. God can do that. God will do that, but that's not what God desires to do. God does not desire of his disciples that we would be, you know, 100-pound kettlebells that he has to drag along in the work, in doing the work of the kingdom. God sees us. He wants to see us as his coworkers, as his collaborators. And so... A spiritual sense of inertia, right, is, is that, is that, what, that's the first part of it, right? You can, you can sit around and wait for God to move you, but there is a second part and there is a second uh, way to understand and think about inertia. So objects in, in motion, so the first part was objects at rest remain at rest. Objects in motion remain in motion unless compelled to change by an external force. Awesome, okay, cool. So let's do a demonstration. Objects in motion remain in motion unless compelled to change. So if that means I can take my little Iron Man finger puppet <laughs> and, uh, and, and put him into motion and he will continue to move, right? All right, hold on. Sorry, embarrassing. That didn't work. Let's try it one more time. All right, I'm going to put him into motion and he will continue. What's the deal? Why has he stopped moving? It's because... Objects in motion will remain in motion unless compelled to change by an external force. See, what we can't see and what we've kind of grown accustomed to as a result of living in this earthly context of ours is that there are external forces at work to put this little finger puppet back at rest. So when he goes into motion, gravity, an external force, is pulling him back down. And when he comes back down and he hits the carpet, friction, an external force, is trying to coax him back into rest, right? So that's why sometimes when we think about work, when we think about, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and, and, and do stuff for the kingdom or I'm going to be a productive citizen, right, whatever it means to work for you, uh, we, 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 we sense in our earthly environment, in our earthly atmosphere, this resistance to our work. Everything in our earth's atmosphere is working to get things, to put things back at rest. Our everyday experience with inertia is defined by our context, by our earthly context. We have all of these external forces, gravity and friction that are uh, corrupting the way that we understand inertia. We rarely ever see the benefits of inertia for movement 
because there's so much that, that, uh, that, that works against it. Unfortunately, this earthly perspective of inertia is similar to the earthly perspective we have of work. Genesis chapter three, verse 17 through 19, it says this. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Maybe for some of you in here tonight, this verse is the verse that has defined work for you. Maybe for some of you tonight, this is the verse that, that this is how you understand work in your life. That work is toil. That work is hard. That work is painful. And maybe you've always thought that work is our punishment from God, right? This Genesis 3 is, this is these are the consequences God lays out to humanity because of um, because of original sin, right? And so maybe you've always thought the fact that we have to work, darn Adam, right? Every Monday you're thinking, darn him. Because <laughs> if he hadn't messed up, I could just stay at home and, and scroll through, through Netflix. But the truth is, it's not the work that was the consequence. It wasn't the work that was the punishment. It was the context. It was the earth. It was the ground was hard. And so it was hard to work. It was the sun was hot. And so you're gonna sweat if you wanna get that bread, Right? It wasn't the work itself that was the consequence from God. It was the context. Within the context of our broken, sinful, fallen world, we've learned to define work as toil. We think of work, when we think of work, we think work feels like hard labor. We think work is something I must, I must do, I have to do to make a living. We, we say and we think work seems endless and the fruits, they seem finite, right? It says it right there in the verse. Yeah, you can work for your bread, uh, you can work for your herb, right, the fruits of the ground, but eventually the bread gets moldy. Eventually your kids go into the refrigerator and they eat the fruit, right? Then you got to go back to work. The fruits are finite and the work just, it seems endless. And so work is just like inertia. That's part of it. That's part of our understanding of understanding work. Uh, but there's a fuller definition of it that we, we tend uh, to not get because we're, we're defining work within our everyday earthly experience. So here's the second part of work's definition. This is what work was intended to be, how, work def how God defined work uh, before Adam and Eve messed it up, right? Genesis chapter two, starting in verse four, it says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens, the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens, the very first worker we ever see in scripture is God himself. The first time work was ever used is Genesis 1 when describing what God was doing in creation. He was working. Before any plant uh, of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground and the Lord God formed man. So there he is working again, reaching down into creation and putting his hands into the dirt. God was literally getting his hands dirty at work, creating us. 
And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The very first definition, the first example of work we see in scripture is that of God's work. But then in verse 15, it says, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to do what? To work, to tend and to keep it. What I, I love about that passage of scripture is that, and what sometimes we, we if you read that, that story too quickly because you've heard it so many times, you miss what's going on. Remember we said that, that God reached down into the dust. He reached down into the dirt. He gets his hand dirty, his hands dirty to work. And then he creates Adam and invites him to do the same thing. He puts him in a, in a garden and says, there's the dirt, <laughs> right? Why don't you reach down and get your hands dirty? Why don't you work? There's a quote by um, Tim Mackey that I love. There's a whole, uh, Tim Mackey is the guy, if you know Bible Project on YouTube or if you have the Read Scripture app on your phone, he's amazing. He also has a podcast called Exploring My Strange Bible. And if you're interested in this, he's got a really in-depth podcast about Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and what that says about work. But just to distill it for you, what he says is when you see a human at work, you see the image of God. When you see a human at work, you see the image of God. When God made Adam and put him to work, Adam was imitating God. Adam was just continuing what God had already been doing. And so we have this relationship as human beings in our earthly context with work. We can't get rid of our environment, right? Just like it affects inertia, it affects our work, right? We can't get rid of it, right? And, and so work sometimes will feel like toil, but it is, as Christians, our responsibility not only to toil just so that we can get bread to eat, but, but to till, to imitate God in our work. And so I just, I wanna get practical with you guys tonight in our definition of work and what it means not just to toil, but to till in your work. If you wanna imitate God in your work, if you want to collaborate with God in your work, then this is what it looks like. To till means working for order, working for order. In Genesis 1, we see God in creation, at work in creation, right? And so many of us are familiar with the passage. It says that God was hovering over the waters. He was hovering over the void. And in your, your uh, Bible, it probably says that everything was formless and void, right? Well, Tim Mackey in his same teaching, he says that actually the better translation is that everything was wild and waste. We tend to think about when you read Genesis 1 that when God approached the void, right? It was like looking at a blank canvas, a black blank canvas, and he just put stuff on it. When really, it was more like going to a garden bed full of weeds. It was wild and it was waste, it was chaos. And he reached down and he starts putting things in order. God not only created light, if you read Genesis 1, he, he, he separated light from darkness. He was creating order. God not only created the heavens, he separated the heavens from the earth. He was creating order, right? God not only created uh, out of nowhere the land, he, he separated the land from the sea. God was creating order. If we want to imitate God in our work, we've got to be people who bring order to our workplace. And so what does that mean practically for you? Maybe the chaos, there's chaos, there's relational disorder at your workplace. Jenny is talking about, Susie is talking about 
Bobby, right? And you've got all this stuff going on and maybe you've said nothing about it or maybe you've participated in the gossip and the chaos and the disorder. As a Christian, as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, you gotta get to a point where you go into your workplace and you say, how can I bring order today? Instead of gossiping, instead of just sitting back and watching everybody, watching the chaos, how can I step to this garden bed full of weeds and how can I bring order to my workplace? That's one way that you can collaborate with God in your work. Another way, uh, what, what we see when God is at work in creation, he's working for order, but he's also working for beauty. I love that God not only uh, was working effectively, he was working excellently. I just had a steak last night. It was amazing. I'm glad that when God made cows, he didn't just say, I will make it efficient, right? And that it will just be, you know, it will fulfill uh, protein. Like they'll get protein out of it. And, but he made it good, right? He made it juicy and all the blood just running out and mm, <laughs> right? When God works, he doesn't just work effectively, efficiently. He works excellently, So practically speaking, if you want to till instead of toil, if you want to work like God, collaborate with him in the work he's already doing, then ask yourself, how can I work for order and how can I work for beauty? How can I work more excellently, not just efficiently? How can I show up to work today and not just punch a clock and get my paycheck at the end of the week, but how can I improve what's happening here? If you do that, you'll look more like God and you'll be collaborating in the work he's already doing. The third thing I want you to think about when you're redefining work in your brain is that when God worked, he worked for order, he worked for beauty, but he also worked to serve. Everything that he created in the creation story, none of that was for him. God doesn't need air. He doesn't need water. He doesn't need, right, all of the the vegetation. He created that for mankind. He created that for humanity. And then he creates Adam and says, hey, go till the earth, right? Make orchards or, you know, set up those like, metal poles for the tomatoes, like go and, 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 and make it a garden. Why? Adam could have just foraged, right? He could have just walked around and picked an Adam, a- apple from a tree, but, but God knew that humanity was coming. And so when Adam worked, he didn't just work for himself, he was working to serve humanity. He was working to serve others. And so ask yourself the question, where in my life can I serve others better? Maybe you don't work, Maybe you're a student, maybe, right? But so you can ask yourself the question, well, well you know, I, in my community, in my class, in my neighborhood, in my house even, how can I serve? Who can I serve, right? If you don't love what you do or where you work, at the very least, bring order, <laughs> bring beauty, bring service. It doesn't matter what you do. I'm not just talking about, you know, super spiritual work. Colossians 3.23 verse 24 says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. So last week, Pastor Fred defined an encounter with God as the only thing that has the power to shift our perception of value. He talked about how as, you know, when he, Uh, started his relationship with God. He had an encounter with God. And before that, he valued all kinds of stuff, all kinds of worldly stuff. And he can tell you about that. He preaches often about how he was a bartender, right? He had a set of values, but then he had an encounter with God and it shifted his perception of value. But I wanna add to that definition today. A God encounter doesn't just change our our perception of value. It also changes how we create value in this world. 
There's an author named Ted Hen- Todd Henry. Uh, he's not a Christian author that I'm aware of. He, he's a secular artist, uh, author writing for a secular audience. Um, but he talks about productivity. He talks about work. He talks about creativity. I love his books. And there's, it's full of wisdom, biblical wisdom, whether he realizes it or not. And, uh, and there is this definition of work in his book, Die Empty. He says, work is any instance when you make an effort to create value where it didn't previously exist. What's interesting is that our world, whether they believe in God or not, they have this desire to create value in the world. Everyone, even your atheist friends will say they wanna know what their purpose is or they wanna know how they can make an impact for the next generation. They wanna know how what they do in life can matter. How can it create value in the world? And so we all desire to add value into this world because guess what? We're all made in the image of God. God is a worker and we want to work ultimately. But not all of us will experience the joy in knowing that the value we create bears the weight of eternal significance. We all want to create value, but we all don't all get the joy in knowing that the value we create bears a weight of eternal significance. But those of us who collaborate with Christ in our work, we can be sure that our earthly efforts will translate into eternal significance. What constitutes for us tonight an encounter with God is not only a proper setting. When we think about encounters, often we think about their setting. We talk about mountaintop experiences. We talk about wilderness experiences, right? So that's part of an encounter. And I hope that tonight, as we talked about, you know, your workplace being a a potential setting, a potential uh, place for an encounter with God to happen, I hope that expands your understanding of that. But, but what constitutes an encounter with God is not only a proper setting, it's also evidence. The value, uh, that there was value added as a result of that encounter. So when we talk about the encounter that the disciples had with God in the upper room, we talk about the setting, the upper room, right? But we talk about the evidence, the tongues of fire, right? When we talk about Jacob in the middle of the desert, we talk about that he was in the desert, but we also talk about the evidence, that ladder that came down from heaven. And so you might be thinking tonight, okay, I get it. I understand that if I collaborate with God, right, in my work, if I till as along with my toiling, then I can be inviting God into my work. I can be participating with him. His presence can be found there. But what about the evidence? Where is the evidence of his presence in my work? How can I be sure that I'm collaborating with him? I'm gonna invite um, Chris to come up. To answer that question, I would point you to um, the story of Joseph, O.T. Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, right? He's one of my favorite people in the Bible. And, uh, And when I think about Joseph. Joseph isn't typically one of the people that you think about when you, when you think about people who have encountered the presence of God. Usually you think about burning bushes. You think about Moses. You think about the people who, who saw crazy stuff, right? Moses is a great guy and he has a great story, but rarely do we ever think about Joseph as someone uh, who had a God encounter. But I actually, I think that Joseph is the perfect person to help us understand what it looks like to encounter the presence of God in our workplace and what the evidence of that work is. Joseph's story 
is really a story of Joseph's life, is really a story of his working life, right? If you know his story, little Technicolor dream goat, dream coat kid, right? If you know the story, you know that Joseph was, was basically kidnapped by his brothers and sold into slavery. He wasn't given the option to enter into the workforce, right? He just was pushed into it. And so Joseph was working as a slave. But even as he was working as a slave, I can only imagine the toiling that was taking place as he was, as he was slaving away for, for Potiphar. Not only was he toiling, he was tilling. It says in Genesis 39 too, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. He, when he was serving, he was demonstrating for us that verse in Colossians, working not just for Potiphar, not just for his master, but for his God. Yeah, I could serve and toil, but I'm gonna till. I'm gonna give my best work. And if you know Joseph's story, you follow it along, he continues to work. He gets promoted by Potiphar to be the manager of his house. Then you know he was unjustly accused of rape and then sent to prison. But then he works in prison. Not just toiling, but tilling so much that he's promoted to be a manager of the prisoners. And then once Joseph was freed from prison, he works for Pharaoh, interpreting dreams. And it's there that he was given the biggest and best promotion of his life. He was made the second in command, the most, the second most powerful person in the most powerful empire of the time in, in Egypt, right? He went from slave to the second most powerful all the while toiling and all the while tilling. At the end of his life in Genesis 50, verse 20, he's confronted by his brothers and probably looking back on all the years of his toil. His brothers are there in front of him and he's this person of power. And this is what he says to them. In verse 20, he says, you intended to harm me. I can imagine him not only thinking as he's talking to his brothers, he's not just talking to his brothers, he's talking to his slave masters, he's talking to to Potiphar, he's talking to his wife, he's talking to the external forces that he was very aware of in the world that were trying to bring him down. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. And here's the evidence. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. At the end of his life, Joseph could look back on all of his work and yeah, he had a good cushy job. He had money, he had all of that stuff, but the most valuable thing he had was the evidence that God was with him all along. That all of his earthly efforts amounted to eternal impact. That everything that he was doing, bringing order, bringing beauty, right, serving, he did it for the glory of God. And because of that, people's lives were saved. I don't know about you, but when I look at my life, at the end of my life, and I think about all the work I've done, I don't want to just think about the paychecks that I got. I don't just want to see a a big fat saving account. I don't want to just see a house. I don't want to just see a nice fancy car. I want to see the evidence that God was with me in my work, that I collaborated with him because it made an eternal impact 
on the people around me. I want to invite you to stand up. We're going to worship together tonight. As we sing this song, here as in heaven, right, as we, we sing, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I want to invite you to ask God the question, what is your will? God, and as I sing, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, God, I pray that you would help me to align my work, to align my service, to align the efforts that I put out in this world to your will so that because of my life, there is evidence of God and there is evidence of heaven. God, we pray tonight that as we work, as we serve, as we go to school, as we do our chores, God, that whatever we do, whatever efforts, whatever earthly efforts we put out in the world, let it serve the purpose of bringing heaven to earth, of bringing your glory to work, of making an eternal impact. Let's worship together.